0: What does it take to make workshops work, and how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hapness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Benedikt Schmaus, and we speak about similarities between large organizations and Montessori schools and what one can learn from the others and how we build and facilitate in both. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back and enjoy the show. Hello, Benedict, and welcome to the show. Hi, Miriam. Happy to have you here and speaking about complex problem solvings and building bridges and Montessori schools and what all of that has to do with facilitation. And before we get there, I always start with the same question. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you?
1: I often call myself a facilitator or think of myself as a facilitator, indeed. Very often use the term bridge builder instead, because facilitator sometimes is probably mistaken or mixed up with moderator.
0: Mm, Especially in Germany.
1: Especially in Germany, indeed. And um, it's a good question. When I started doing that, sometime in the last decade, when I sort of Made an informal transition from very often being the guy standing on the stage or somehow bringing people together to making a living out of it, basically. Mm. At some point, that transition happened, but really gradually.
0: And I would be curious what the guy on the stage did (laughs) bringing people together. So, what was the format? And then maybe double click on the bridge building and what you understand by that.
1: The guy on the stage did. Well, many, many different things. So whenever I was in touch with clients, both sort of teams that were supporting me from different content perspectives and then clients that needed to solve a complex problem, I realized that it's really hard for people to actually work together and (coughs) to actually have the real conversation. There's always that famous elephant in the room that nobody addresses. 90% of not much more of conversation tended to happen on the purely rational level, how to organize, how to run a process, where to grow, where to cut costs, whatever the topic was. But more than half of the problems were more on the emotional and political level. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And the guy on the stage tried to increasingly address those next in addition to or as an enabler of these rational problems. So um, that's really what that guy on stage did and increasingly does. Yeah. Um, and that's why at some point started calling it bridge building because it really to solve a complex problem, one that is really messy and has all these different dimensions you need different capabilities. You need technologists, you need strategists, you need experienced designers, you need people that do it and people that know it and people that decide it. So across hierarchies, across silos, uh, you need different capabilities. And they all have different styles of working, different styles of thinking, which they learned latest in university or in their jobs. And it's not natural for them to work together. uh, Mm -hmm. So, And at some point I realized it's a separate capability helping them work together better. Yeah. Bridges between those different areas that we need.
0: Beautiful. And it's it sounds as if it's, yes, it's a bridge builder and parts of the bridge is also translation, I guess, because with all these different capabilities, they, they often have different perspectives, but also different language.
1: Very much so. Very much so. Different. And even if it's the same language, superficially, literally the same words, they mean different things for people, definitely between different organizations or, or units of an organization, but even culturally, right? How senior yeah. or junior you are, which geographic background you come from, starting with, for example, a simple term design, right? We mm. use design in my world to design a workshop, for example. Yeah. Uh, when I talk to somebody else about, I'm looking for a designer, guess what they're thinking about? Huh? About somebody drawing interior or sketching a dress or interior yeah. design. And yeah. a UX designer thinks about something altogether different again. And uh, so, so what I realized is therefore that a facilitator benefits a lot from having a very broad base of knowledge and one that is doesn't have to be the specialist, but he needs to be able to understand deep enough to ask the right questions. Mm. And to realize when people might be miscommunicating,
0: yeah, and to dare to ask the right questions.
1: Oh yeah, that was a big change for me because I grew up as a strategy consultant and mm-hmm. sort of still am, but my role was being the expert, right, knowing the answer, and as a facilitator, that then changes dramatically to enabling others to find their own answer.
0: How do you juggle this? Do you have to hold back, or is it that you can hold? both and communicate
1: both it's easiest when i have the chance to stand in front of a group and with a topic that i know little about Mm. other than the process how to handle how to change an organization how to find a new growth area Uh, but it's easiest if i don't know the field the industry of that growth area for example so that makes it really easy When I know the topic, I indeed had to hold, especially in my first years, had to hold back very consciously. Saying, "Yeah, I have the idea. I know. I, I think I know. I probably didn't, but I think I know." <laughs> and then consciously held back. And very often, when there's so 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 in between situations, I not only think about I'm wearing different hats. I'm literally telling my group, my audience, I'm switching my hat now. Right? I'm I'm joining you as an expert for five minutes or four minutes. And yeah. now I'm going back to be a facilitator. So actually making that explicit worked very well for me,
0: yeah. And I'm asking last week, I had um I recorded an interview with Rob, and we had the conversation about exactly that. And he said that it's actually a misconception that facilitators should be neutral because don't you have the the responsibility to share your knowledge if you have it? So how dare you to stand there and pretend and let the group run over the edge, yeah. <laughs> missing a certain piece of information that you hold. And just because you decided to be neutral as a facilitator, you yeah. won't tell them. Yeah, And it actually made sense, especially if you're in the role of a strategy consultant.
1: Yeah, indeed. I, I actually wouldn't say a facilitator needs to be neutral. So I, I mm. strongly agree with that point of view. I'm very committed to a making the group a better team on the leadership mm-hmm. team, a better leadership team, maybe. And I'm very committed to the objectives that we set up front. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, I'm totally not neutral when this group starts to decide, well, that objective doesn't is not important for us. Let's do something else sort <laughs> of, or let's deviate from the scope dramatically. Um, so I'm very much not neutral. And indeed, occasionally you, you do have knowledge and then probably before switching my role to being an expert in the in the team i actually try to leverage my expertise to i would say make them come up with their own experience and own ideas in order to also find that point that i think mm-hmm. might be important so yeah. i probably phrase it as a question or invent a little exercise that they might at least test if that idea that i had is a relevant one and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't frankly and then you also have to definitely not be be stuck to your own idea yeah
0: yeah, that's a slippery slope. Yeah. True, and I can imagine that if you present it as a suggestion or an invitation for them to to play with it, instead of okay, this is my strategy consultant head, and then everyone in the room believes, oh, they're charging lots of money, so they must know <laughs> which direction to go. Um, is a different framing with a big impact, actually.
1: It's a different framing. So indeed I think asking the questions typically anyway, a very good tool (laughs) as a facilitator Mm, and another tool i use is i give different options when i think something might be missing in a big Mm brainstorming session but then they probably the first person said something it wasn't designed well and they anchored on that idea and then i'm trying to test if there's other ideas relevant so maybe i give them three additional ideas one of them i think is actually really really needed but a sort of throw three out there to see if the one sticks and if it sticks fantastic or another one even better. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. And then it's okay.
0: Yeah. And then the responsibility is still with the group. Absolutely. Yeah. And you started with a description of this room full of people who all have different expertise and they all come from different areas and they fail to communicate about what really matters. Mm-hmm. Why do you think is it that? So it seems as if everyone speaks about collaboration cognitively everyone wants mm-hmm. wants it and somehow there is as you say an elephant in the room. Why do they need
1: bridge builders? We're starting to move into the other topic that you mentioned in the beginning because we learn the wrong habits as of ladies primary school if not kindergarten and we learn to behave in a certain way right we learn to work for grades or incentives in business world. Yeah? Um, we learn to be super specialized. We learn to function in one area um, and not think systemically or realistically. And that means we all become in that world of divided labor, super specialists, right? Mm-hmm. But we specialize also not only in the content knowledge, but in that way of working that legal person or the creative person or the engineer needs. And we do that for for decades until we are in, Dispositions that where, where, we, where we are out and asked to take decisions. So I think that's what the real problem is that we're sort of over specialized, uh, that we're over incentivized uh, on certain behaviors and things, and that systemic thinking is something that only a very small group is thinking of as enablers in this world, but that is not valued actually, especially in corporate settings, as an important function, really. Mm.
0: So basically, that we. From education, from socialization, upbringing, we're always learning to comply with someone else's goals or someone else's structure and to fit in Yes, and certainly. to be specialized.
1: Yeah. And uh, whether what we think is important and what we should be working on or how we address it or the form in which we express it, right? It's In school, it's the exam that needs to be taken on that topic and that form. Prescribed by a teacher, mm-hmm. and anything creative around it that actually might be more valuable doesn't really count, right? And same in business world. then at some point we get our introductory trainings or we come we observe seniors that have been living in that world that has been developed out of a linear world in terms of how we behave. and uh, we're being promoted because we fit into that system and we live with the values of that old system somehow. And, uh, but I, I really fundamentally think whether it's digital, whether it's climate and sustainability, whether it's many other areas that, that hit our world these days, that's fundamentally wrong behavior, actually. And, uh, it's very black and white, what I'm describing and exceptions mm. are proved through that rule, maybe, but uh, that's my view on where I think this comes from. So it's deeply ingrained behavior that literally starts in our education system.
0: And what I hear is that. A certain type of behavior comes from the fact that we grow up with that there's there's a right and a wrong way to do things. And then what I hear in the way you describe creativity is then adding all these shades of gray that what if there are other ways of doing it? What if there's not only one right and one wrong way?
1: Absolutely. And I think what we perceive as the right way that has been invented in a world that wasn't as complex as today's world, right? Uh, That didn't have pandemics, that didn't have global supply chain interactions, that didn't have the climate challenge at that scale, that didn't have digitization. So I think the level of complexity and the speed of these problems is Mm -hmm. just increasing and therefore really those linear approaches just don't work anymore. But that's how we're trained.
0: Uh, I I think there's this um, TED Talk comparing the educational sector to the industrial age. Mm-hmm. how we package children. Basically, we we put them through a machine that is yeah. one-on-one like a industry.
1: And it feels like the Ford production system from the early ages. Right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> Just on education, where at the <laughs> end you have kind of standard packaged mm-hmm. human beings who can check all the boxes, but that's education in the industrial age and not in the... Yeah. Yeah. Digital or in the knowledge or even in the post-digital, is it post-digital age? Post-knowledge age.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the and, I uh, age. as you mentioned, and I think the whole AI wave that's currently going publicly through the world, yeah, hopefully is a little trigger for that that makes people realize, okay, that just doesn't work anymore. It's now more obvious than ever. That spending ninety percent on learning knowledge and Creating an output purely in text form, presentation form, or something like that is already today done better by machines than us, right? So it's a real wake-up call to focus on all those other capabilities that we need. Collaboration, growth, mindset, and you name it.
0: So what I hear from um, some universities is that they just ignore it and forbid it. Okay, our students are not allowed to use AI or computers. And then I wonder, how can you ever believe that you are educating tomorrow's workforce if you try to protect them or uh, limit the opportunities, actually, of today's age? And whether this is then transported even in organizations where with this mindset, okay, let's ignore the computer, let's ignore all the danger.
1: Yeah, indeed. And it's um, I think it's a rather symptom of organizations that are not really focusing on the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing a lot of discredit for organizations that do, that <laughs> uh, they simply forbid those things or put apps, stronger boundaries around it. Yeah. Yeah? But I'd rather, also in our workshops, I'd rather have a breakout team that interviews chatGTP for a solution and another one does something differently creative and uh, let's come up with the best solution together.
0: Yeah, yeah and what I find interesting is that there was, I think, until maybe even a year ago, there was this entire discussion that, okay, AI is good for logic or, or structured data, but creativity is for humans. Mm-hmm. And now with ChatGPT, we actually realized that AI or these um, AI-powered assistants yep. are much better in terms of creativity and brainstorming than we could ever be. Yes. So we have to rethink, I think, how much pressure to put on our groups
1: Yeah. with yeah, creativity the, uh, or I how mean, to
0: take shortcuts through ChatGPT and others.
1: Yeah. I mean, literally the most beloved brainstorming post-it wars that we do are almost replaced. At least they are significantly supported right? Uh, yeah. uh, by AI. And uh, we can focus on other things. Yeah? Yes.
0: Yes. They're looking, which of these million ideas actually makes sense for us and what are the. Uh, uh. So before we get into the, what can we change at the core? And I'd love to hear from your Montessori experience. Is it possible to unlearn then all this behavior and what can be the contribution of a facilitator or a consultant in the unlearning process?
1: I love the word unlearn, first of all, uh, it's one I've, I've often used myself. So one of my roles in, in the past has been sort of to also enable my own past organizations to work more collaboratively and simply be more human in how we behave. And um literally when we design training sessions for uh, thousands of people, we, we literally thought, well, the only thing we need to do is actually make them unlearn your behaviors and, and mm-hmm. sort of come back to a more human Naturally, natural base of how we want to behave, right? It, it's sort of ingrained. It's nobody is a bully by nature, I think, and nobody has bad intentions. It's simply the roles that we fulfill in certain constraints. So I think you can unlearn, but you cannot unlearn it in one training session, right? Or in an online video or in one cool workshop of multiple days, even. So it needs a whole system that you're in, your whole environment. And not just for a session, but that you live in needs to change for you to change behaviors really for good. So if you've learned to optimize your silo and optimize that KPI and you're only being measured by that, if your manager doesn't change that, you can be in any leadership or team building workshop that you want. If you're not allowed to apply that next Monday or at least two months after still, it doesn't help. Right. So we need both the skill, the courage, um, but also the, the change of your environment, the courage of your leaders to then really unlearn.
0: And then the incentive schemes, I guess, when you say KPIs, I hear, what are we measuring? What behavior are we incentivizing?
1: Yeah, yeah. for me, they are a, a huge topic, right? And in any sales-oriented organization, uh, that is twice as tricky because it's well, the financial base of the organization, of course. And it's really hard to find that right balance. Yeah, but that is, I think, really important. And it has a lot to do also with with fear. Maybe that's another mm-hmm. big topic. And the famous failure culture. Mm, and I think especially when we are in complex situation at a high pressure, that are high stakes, you can lose a lot as an organization or maybe as an individual or a team as well. What do you do? You go back to old, trusted, trained, repeated behaviors, right? And those are, this is my box. This has always worked. This is my process. These are my trusted people. Uh, the ones that think like me and not differently. Uh-huh. And so let's do it like that. And we're fast and we're more secure. And if it fails, nobody can criticize me because I've done what I've always done. But if you do what you always do, you get what you always got. So that doesn't really help to solve a complex problem. Yes. So I think fear is really at the root cause and allowing people to dare to jump into the cold water to try something else and gain the confidence that a different approach, a more human, a more naturally feeling approach actually might lead to better results. That's what we very often try as facilitators, I think.
0: Yes. And it's, isn't it a big ask? Because the fear is, as you say, it's something that we've learned and the fear protects us because we've learned that it's dangerous out there. And if we show our vulnerable self or we dare to take risks, then we get fired. Or we might get fired or someone laughs at us or someone doesn't take us seriously. And I think that's a slippery slope if we are there for a project and we build this environment where we can take risks and where suddenly we feel safe enough. How to then transition back into the organization?
1: Yeah. It's a huge ask for leaders, first of all, how to really think about cultural development in their organization. It's also a big ask for individuals to. Live up to their potential, or simply do what they think is right, not mm-hmm. what they do they think is incentivized. And I'm actually convinced they're not necessarily not congruent but we think they might be. But yes, it's a bit a uh, big ask. and if you if you take what we discussed seriously, sort of and you embark on such a journey, but you don't mean it's serious, it's actually dangerous, right? because you're you're failing expectations that you're setting, and then it's actually a almost a really negative uh, impact of, of something in the long run.
0: Yeah. And then it can only work if it's really an organizational project, I think, where mm-hmm. the the top leadership is really sponsoring this initiative.
1: That would help a lot. That's yeah. <laughs> no, really, really absolutely.
0: And to come back to the root cause, so you mentioned that yes, it starts with the education, basic education in the school system. And from our exploration call, I know that you're building a Montessori school, and I would love to hear from you what you've learned from this process and what maybe a school system has in common with an organization. Mm-hmm. And maybe for those who are not familiar with the Montessori school system, uh, maybe you can give us a nutshell what that yeah, is. of
1: course. So let's start with that 60-second intro on Montessori. She was a brilliant physician, actually, so medical doctor, lived more than 100 years ago in Italy, Maria Montessori. And uh, she, from that human body angle, but also human mind angle, she went went a lot into psych- psychology, uh, started to f- had the chance actually to work with very young kids back then, sort of kindergarten kids below six, eight, six years old in underprivileged contexts. So that were really, really challenged and started to develop and observe very scientifically how do kids of that type behave. And the main observation, I guess, she had was that if you create the perfect environment for these kids to actually do what they can do best and strengthen their strength, lots of themes that we know these days, then they can actually develop beautifully, right? They can learn how to read and write, and they can do complex problems, they build a social organization that's very different. And very quickly she saw, well, that's not only relevant for special kids, that's relevant for every kid. And it's not very only relevant for every age. And then so she basically developed her, her system and globally rolled it out. Um, and realized that environment actually changes as the kids grow. So there's different Montessori types of systems for the mm-hmm. under six year olds, for the six to 12 year olds, for the 12 12- to 18 year olds. And these are these days, even for adults up to elderly people. You but the core is still primary school secondary school of course and then before primary school kindergarten so but she realized these environments change right the fundamental belief doesn't really that we need to unleash the inherent curiosity innovativeness creativity willingness to do work to Mm -hmm. do meaningful work that's really inherent in kids and simply foster it so that's the fundamental idea right and that means a Montessori school or kindergarten looks very differently. Uh, so a couple of highlights, it's age mixed groups of at least three years so that you cannot be have a frontal expert explaining you everything, but actually you need to work in small teams. You have a very different social mix. Uh, the youngest one explore and learn from the elders. The second years perform very nicely. The third years almost the coaches and repeat a lot of things until they move to the next three-year phase, the next three-year phase.
0: And then they are the c- previous coaches are back into the Yeah, learning. and
1: they are back into learning roles, and that repeats sort of three Which or four times. Which keeps
0: the humility. Course.
1: Absolutely. It keeps the Does humility. It? That means not everybody will learn at the same speed and doesn't have yeah. to, not even within a year, even if we adhere to all the curricula that are out there. and do a lot more, actually. You work from in very small teams as a result, right? You can work with high-performing kids like uh, the super smart ones and, and also with kids that have a lot of other issues but maybe socially are beautiful to have in a in a classroom, sort of a truly integrated classroom is no problem at all. There's no time rhythms. So when kids are focused on something and want to do deep work, they can do that for three hours. That's okay. You don't interrupt after 45 minutes and um, throw them, but you you allow them to get into that famous flow right mm-hmm. away. And so many other things. So it's, it's a very beautiful system where I personally believe that it's, while it's more than a hundred years old, it's literally the future of what education should be. Many of the Nordic systems have a lot of these concepts built in as well. So it's not, there's other beautiful systems too, but it's that fundamental belief of people are truly motivated, create the perfect environment for them to, to leverage that motivation. That's what I really believe in. And then you also get kids and and young adults out of the system that are A, super smart, (laughs) B, super social, uh, that know how to collaborate, that know how to learn new skills, whatever they are, they know how to learn. Whether you taught them programming or not, they can learn programming by themselves very quickly, Uh, to pick one random example. And people that learn, that think holistically, think about the world as a system, right, and about their responsibility and accountability in that world. So, Whenever we talk to alumni of our school and to schools that where they or universities where they have gone, uh, it's always extremely positive feedback. And uh, yeah, wherever I go, it's it's that situation.
0: And it almost sounds. And you mentioned that there is a Montessori for adults and elderly, because looking at it, it could almost be a continuous program for an organization to put people. Maybe this is the unlearning that, or learning that we would need mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. okay, um, have mixed groups, split up the silos, put them into mixed groups and uh, work on a on a challenge.
1: Absolutely. And sort of the facilitation method I learned at the core, which is called MG Taylor. It's actually a, a developed in the past by a Montessori teacher amongst others, <laughs> which I only found out later, actually. Yeah, many people actually call it Montessori for adults because it, it does... Feel like that. And as you were asking, what is the parallel? Um, it is that fundamental mindset A, that people want to do great work, whatever the mm-hmm. incentive system is, they want to do something good. They are naturally customer oriented. Yeah? They are naturally interested in high quality and great results, but they need a better environment, right? And I really believe what we do in business today is put it, in order to optimize a system at scale somehow, we put people into boxes in which they're allowed to work and do great work. Uh, but that doesn't optimize the whole system necessarily. It just makes it easy to manage, but it doesn't optimize the system.
0: Easy to manage, but not easy to work.
1: Yeah, definitely not easy to work. Right?
0: Yeah,
1: And definitely not really focused on, on exactly the right results.
0: And tell us more about the MG Taylor approach then that you would use, if I understand correctly, yeah. um, that you would then use in your work with organizations. hmm
1: so, um well, when when I sort of started to formalize my facilitator coaching journey, et cetera, that was sort of, for me, the most fascinating method that I came along. MG Taylor stands for Matt and Gail Taylor. Uh, so two doyers of the, uh, the world of facilitation, in my point of view, that are in their later years these days. Greetings, in case you're ever hearing this. And Gail was a Montessori teacher, actually. And uh, so that was looking very much on the educational aspect of how to create better environments for people to thrive in and to collaborate. And Matt was a, um, an architect that was a, a pupil of Frank Lloyd Wright, and was very much focusing also on the physical environment. And from that sort of wind the definition of environment on what is needed to accelerate work, solve complex problems. And, and they did this decades ago. And since then, sort of the method has evolved, spread across many organizations, many freelancers, maybe many boutique uh, uh, shops that, that do this type of work. It's a very tightly knit community, but the the beauty of the method is that it's really a, a holistic setup that fundamentally is based on that idea of creating the perfect environment physically, emotionally, in, in how we prepare, what type of m- content we prepare, in what way.
0: Can you give an example?
1: So in a perfect sort of uh, transformation setup where we actually embed, so we literally would embed sort of a physical space almost at a client. Right. Um, and literally that would be sort of the heartbeat of, of a transformation program. And that physical space would be a, it would be a workshop space, of course. It would be a visual display of the whole project program process. It would be the space to exhibit and play with prototypes that are being developed of of any kind. It makes the vision and the progress of, of that program tangible, whether as a Mm long-term thing or whether in the context of a single workshop. And so. In the physical environment, that means we work a lot with open space. We work a lot with reconfigurable spaces just with huge whiteboards, but that can reconfigure the space in seconds, literally. Plants are super important. Natural light from at least two sides to have a different thing is very important. And then the physical space expands to other ways of uh, feeling and emotions. So music is always super important uh, for us. We have some teams that's rare because the effort is high, but literally go as far as optimizing the smell and even the food that's served connected to that. So that's taking it very far, but I've even seen that. And then other elements of that prepared environment, as Montessori would call it, um, are the information we provide. So A, the creative triggers that are provided from games that are out there and interesting books to the... Rational information of here are all the facts that you need to solve your problem, but mm-hmm. not displayed in Excel, but in a beautiful scribed map or whatever the right format is that we think we typically put on a huge knowledge wall and make all of that information available, but in a digestible way so that we make it in the original word of the word facilitate easy for people to digest yeah. information and work with it and accelerate solutions. So. And scribe artists are not for fun, but actually the way we use them are there to translate words into pictures to, again, have a different way of learning yeah. and creating sense for, for people that are more visual. And um, therefore, we, we look for special scrap artists that are good in translating the live moment into a picture super fast, not a post-production only, mm-hmm. but actually that live translation. So a few examples, as many more, but how we think about the perfect environment.
0: Thank you for the examples. I think this really helps to conceptualize and to understand what you mean. And what I hear is also the transparency of the project because I think what makes many transformational change processes fail is that it somehow happens in this black box. And then, yes, there is strategic communication to get everyone on board and there are strategic workshops where people get on board. And then there's this lack of communication in the meantime, because everything has to be prepared and everyone is always overworked. And what I hear from your description is almost that everything is in real time displayed as it, so you have a space where you can go and actually update yourself and thereby pulls people into the transformation process that they want to be part of it because it's a nice place to hang out. Instead of pushing them into the transformation process, you have to do the work.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good thing. Two thoughts I connect with that. It needs to be very consistent, right? It's not about the one or two or three big moments only, and then some more or less top-down communication. These days, we are a bit smarter and try to have smaller two-way communication Fire set jets next to the website, et cetera. And for large scale organizations, that's all needed That's a foundation, but it's about the consistency of such transformation of the leadership messages of the behaviors we set. And I think such a program enabled by such capabilities brings it to life immediately, literally from day one of defining something together, actually, giving Mm -hmm. power to people to decide that is very consistent in how we do that, uh, or how we think organizations should do it uh, over a year or even longer. And uh, only that consistency, I think, drives change at the end. And for that, you need transparency. And for that, you need sort of the heart of a program to be more collaborative, I think.
0: Yeah. And what are the baby steps that you need, assuming that most of the people in the organization did not go through the Montessori education?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you need as a client or as a facilitator to develop into that direction? Or
0: Yeah, to help the organization to actually adopt that and to... I can hear a lot of resistance because it is a disruption to the general workflow. It is a disruption to power structures because those who used to have the power and the secrecy, they now are confronted with the situation that everyone has that. So what's
1: actually One of my mentors framed it actually in a way that in any event that we do, and, and even more so in a permanent transformation setup, we actually redistribute power. Mm We distribute power, decision power, literally decision power from the leaders that would typically take the decision to the group of whatever size that is highly diverse, goes down to the shop floor worker to actually take a decision in certain boundaries that leadership has set. But that's sort of the fundamental mindset. Otherwise, you cannot be empowered. If you don't, if you're not allowed to take decisions, the whole thing is mute. Um, Because
0: the power is a finite set. So you cannot just have more power to more people. So you need to take it away from someone.
1: You need to take it (laughs) away from someone. And typically the someone sits somewhere at the top as an individual or as a team. And uh, But we're redistributing power to to the front line, to the people Mm -hmm. that are the implementers and the people that do it together with the people that are formally in the place to decide it. So that is fundamental what we do. And uh, if you're not willing to redistribute power, basically, at least for that topic in that moment, or ideally, in my point of view, on the long run, step by step as a permanent organizational model... I think this doesn't work. So that fundamental leadership conviction that that is the right thing to do for in that situation, that is actually needed in order to get there. That was only 10% of the answer to your initial question. So I need to go back to that. Go.
0: I might even deviate more because now I'm wondering what's in for them. So how do you communicate to those who are losing power and how do you get them on board?
1: I don't think they're losing power, but it's how you interpret what power means or what leadership means, right? right? And yes, there are certain roles that certain people with certain experience, with certain managerial skills and with certain, and sometimes especially to the external world with certain formal positions need to take. Uh, I, I need a CFO that has certain decision rights, no doubt about yeah. that. But my role, my understanding of leadership is coming back to the same phrase almost every time is that their role is to create the perfect environment for their teams, for their experts to do the best jobs they can. Hopefully they hired people or aspire to hire people that are even better than themselves in. In doing that, otherwise, why hire them? You can do it yourself other for workload reasons. And um, so I really think the primary role of leadership is to enable your organization, your teams, to have the best possible environment to do the best possible job. And if you interpret your role like that, rather than I have the power over a budget of X billion or million and uh, power over X people, then, then I think it can work. If your mindset is in that different place, I'm probably not the right person to talk to. And I do think in terms of the challenge for leaders uh, to make it, take it from, from, from that perspective, if we're suggesting that approach to people that have come up through the different system, um, successfully, by the way, very successfully, they want to do good as well. But that approach is very uncertain for them. I'm convinced it is not risky, but it feels very risky because you've never done it like that. And it's probably a high stakes situation in which you're daring to take it. And frankly, the returns are unknown. It sounds good, but you don't really know what's happening because you are letting go, right? It's like, I don't know, letting your teenage kid out of home almost and hoping that you did all good things so that they take smart decisions. And sometimes they don't maybe, but on average they do. So I think that is that is the real challenge that leaders face. It's an unknown approach that feels risky, sounds interesting, um, mm. but the rewards are still somehow unknown until you've gone through the process. And that is the really hard part that requires a lot of conversations which is sort of very often mo- most of my role as a facilitator before an actual event, um, to convince them that that's the right way to go and to lead them to that moment where they're actually there to expose the team to such an approach or an mm.
0: organization. So it's more of the coaching.
1: And, and that is where sort of the coaching background that I started my facilitator career with personally actually comes in. And again, has very similar thinking, I think, depending on the coaching school, but... Coaching very much for me is also about not looking at the other person, but looking at the, sorry, not looking at the same problem as the other person. And from your experience sharing, I would do it like that, but looking at how the other person observes the problem and helping the person solve the problem in a better way. So very similar, I think, in that sense, just on an individual and a group level.
0: So how do you bring this knowledge and experience back to the school you're building? And maybe even vice versa, how do you bring the the experience of building a school back to the organization, consultancy and facilitation work. Not
1: well, everybody who's working with me at that school. Thank you for helping me because it's, it's a big team effort. So yes. I'm not building a school, I, yes. and, um, yes. <laughs> but I'm helping grow it. <laughs> and it's, it's beautiful because sort of well, it's an organization that's carried by the parents, basically. In the meantime, it has 60 employees, 300 kids, something like that, and um, has grown from zero. 13 years ago and we're continuously growing it every year and building an educate well an adult education part for example and the new kindergarten and and growing it in all dimensions basically and what's super interesting to observe for me is that we're also trying to apply these principles that i was just discussing in the operating model of the school so how the school is organized right
0: Mm.
1: what we're also learning is it's not as easy as I w- as I was just describing it in real life, right? Because again, from an adult's perspective that has a role there now, we're asking people to take more accountability and that weighs on people's shoulders, that weighs on your thoughts in the weekend uh, if the leadership team has not only delegated but provided full accountability of, I don't know, selecting your students, selecting your fellow workers maybe, deciding on your educational setup, deciding how you spend the budget X uh, for for something. So giving more accountability to people for good, not just delegating a task that you're still responsible for, weighs heavily on people's shoulders. And they also need to learn that. And that that's a big part of the work that we are doing to try to help the organization cope with that.
0: And I I can see so many tripwires. (laughs) One Mm -hmm. is everyone is emotionally invested because it's about their kids. Yes. So it's not well, I guess in organizations, when we are employees, we are maybe emotionally invested, but not to that extent. And I think as parents, I'm not a parent myself, but I believe everyone knows how they want their kids to be educated. So then suddenly you have to to help a group of highly ambitious parents to coordinate and collaborate and to come up with the best possible solution. Mm-hmm. That's a facilitation effort. And then... The next one is at some point, the children also get older. So basically your team replaces itself then constantly, I guess, because if your children are no longer at the school, would you still remain part of the organizational board?
1: Mm.
0: So how to make it self-sustainable and to onboard the new parents
1: that's actually exactly the phase that we're in now. How do we make the system more stable and less dependent on a few individuals? So,
0: mm. so what's, indeed, the, what's your our, learnings?
1: <laughs> comes down to consi- to clarity of how you want to lead an organization and, and consistency in that is my main learning. And, and that it's super hard if you're not doing that as a full-time job. That's a very special case there, right? Because the Another trip that. Yeah. as a hobby, would not do it justice, frankly, but still they're doing it on the side.
0: And that's a voluntary, they're not paid for that.
1: Yeah. The few, the few parents that carry it, no. But then obviously there's a body of 50 fully paid the, people that run the school at the end. Yes, of course. Of course. But that's their full time job then also. The, the educational deans, and yeah. The team yeah. There, but still, even they need then, then support. So that, that's actually for us a big question. How we sort of put that organization into the next level of maturity. But yeah, it, it's. It's that continuity and consistency of how you want to lead, I think, and how you want to run an organization culturally that really makes this difficult or challenging and interesting, down to everyday small decisions in which this is brought to life, right? Whether you want to, for example, we're at a scale where we need to standardize a bit more as every larger growing organization, vacation rules, overtime rules, right? Uh, leaves of absence, typical things that in the beginning, yeah, individual decisions, of course, when you have 10 employees or five. With 60, it starts to become different. And then uh, you suddenly start to standardize and you you find yourself in exactly that situation. You're creating the same structure for everyone. (laughs) While your fundamental belief is everyone is different and needs a different environment and different rules and different tasks. Yeah, So that's sort of, for example, one interesting second level, like that if we want to create perfect environments for every individual child and, and, and adolescent, we also need to do that for every employee. But standard rules like standard overtime rules or standard XYZ are completely opposed to that. You know?
0: How do you solve that puzzle?
1: We haven't solved it yet. <laughs> very to be very honest. No, but actually to, to constantly challenge us whenever the organization has that every organization has that tendency to sort of standardize, harmonize, uh, but with every single bigger one of these decisions, yeah, we actually try to go back and say, well, is, is that in line with our values, I would yep. call it, yeah? with our fundamental beliefs. And very often we say, no, the way we wrote the initial thing isn't, right? Well, because we copied the version X or Z of a contract from another school because that was easy and quick or chat GTP support suggested that. But then we, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that, but we need to make it more flexible. You know? And uh, so that's really interesting, but I'm really realizing on that's at least on a weekly level, there's bigger decisions to be taken. mm mm-hmm. And every one of these decisions needs to be compared to that set of values, set of fundamental beliefs, if it's really true. And and very often there's that tendency, even for us, because we've all been trained in the world that I criticized at the beginning, we automatically somehow go back there. That's the first reaction because that's, and it takes decades, I think, to change that.
0: Yeah. And it makes me think of different models. Like, was it Zappos? There, they said that everyone can basically decide their own salary and their own yeah. leave days and take as many as they consider rational. Or um, so there's
1: a big trend over the last years around self-governed organizations, mm-hmm. right? Different kinds, uh, sociocracy, yeah. holacracy, many different yeah. models out there. And frankly, if if you are serious about what we've been discussing up until now, the result of any transformation, some of them would consequently lead to a more self-organized organization. Mm-hmm. Zappos and Spotify are the two global models where that has happened in organizations of a certain scale with at least five digit numbers of employees. Mm -hmm. But if we're honest, most organizations where that has been successfully implemented are mid-sized companies with 500 employees or something with their own struggles. And my clients typically are much larger corporate clients. And uh, that's why I think a lot of good things can be borrowed from this in terms of leadership mindset and behavior as a, society at least i haven't come across the solutions yet to actually have have mega organizations apply that consequently i think that'll be interesting to observe over the next 10 20 years but a school could a school could i mean any school is small enough to to do that yes
0: and what holds you back then or maybe doesn't
1: it doesn't we're on the way we're on the way focus resources money at some point in order to invest sufficiently in these type of topics as well right there's a little bit of everyday reality <laughs> everywhere. Uh, but no, nothing's holding us back in that sense, just that it takes time and it takes consistent focus. It doesn't change overnight. That's the one thing. I was much more positive when I started that journey that that can be done very quickly in a year and a half. And obviously, I was wrong.
0: And thank you for being so open about that. I can totally see that. <laughs> And because also now you're in the position where you're emotionally involved because it's your school, your, well, your school in air quotes, so uh, you're co-building, co-owning it, but you're involved. And I wonder whether this brings then also humility into your work when you go to organizations, because then you realize, oh, yes, I can do all this consulting and facilitation work. But actually, I know how difficult it is to really implement it. So what have you learned then? Or have you adjusted your style given your personal experience at the school?
1: Mm -hmm. It's a very strong addition to the experiences I've been able to make. One of the benefits of being a consultant is that after 20 years, you've seen a few dozen, if not a few hundred companies and then help them somehow change. But that is sort of an even closer example, right, of a very small scale, but still a very relevant one. And, and indeed, it does make you more, more humble, more down to earth, uh, not less ambitious, I think. I've been reflecting on that too. But you have a different perspective on solving a problem on top, mm. right? I think when I started as a strategy consultant, I was only looking at it strategically from the top, from the 30,000 foot angle. And I, as a team, we knew exactly what the right solution was. And we I, because we did that together with smart senior clients. It was never wrong, but that didn't mean we were successful in pulling the whole organization along, Um, or at least they could have been even more impactful ways, or it could have been faster or even better. And just having a different perspective definitely helps. Right? There's one model we use in MG Taylor called uh, the zone of emergence, uh, Mm -hmm. which thinks about how creative, bold ideas emerge to a complex problem. And it basically is very roughly three elements a you need to scope the idea like in a pressure cooker environment so that the energy can't escape the second level is in that scope you need to think about as a wave going through that box now you need to go through multiple iterations in order to solve it because the first idea is never the best right so you develop one idea and a concept test it get feedback develop the idea again and again and at least three times if not 20 times and the third layer is vertically or across that you need to do that at multiple, we call it levels of recursion, multiple levels. So if the problem exists on a business unit level, you need to go at least one level down on the team level or then the individual level, and also at least one level up on the corporate level and maybe industry level to solve the problem. And then eventually you break the boundaries, actually. Um, but that is I connected with that very theoretical model, maybe because it helps me be on different levels, levels of recursion, mm-hmm. thinking it from... The industry context, the corporate context, the business unit context, but also much more from the individual context.
0: And how do you build this pressure cooker in the first place? What's the equivalent or can you give an example of this pressure cooker Mm -hmm. situation?
1: Yeah, there's a couple. One is simply the content scoping, right? So when we lead up to workshop or any intervention and and scope it, we try to really be super precise. First of all, on the problem that needs to be solved and try to Mm -hmm. reframe that multiple times because. The first version of what you think the problem is never is the problem, and then we try to scope it to something a bit smaller, content-wise, so to man- manageable at least. So I don't know whether by geography or let's only talk about that geography. Let's only talk about that business unit. Let's only talk about a three-year time frame so to niche down, frame. basically. To niche down to make mm-hmm. it to make it small doesn't mean we will stay in that context forever, mm-hmm. but we're limiting. The problem and the solution space so that the elephant can be digested yeah? so that's one and then there's other ways to create that pressure which for example is time boxing yeah? so whenever we run sessions every time we get feedback that was a bit short and sometimes it was really a bit too short but it's somehow too short by design because we want people to Think about the most important things and and solve those. And we'll, rather than spending three hours on the right idea, I'd rather have them iterate three times one hour mm-hmm. in different teams on that same idea because you'll you'll get much richer impact and in the same time, much better output. So that's also part of the pressure cooker to mm-hmm. time box it or in individual sessions to well, make these boxes even smaller, right? So first time you're only allowed to think about that from the end customer's point of view. And the next team does the same problem, but from the employee's point of view and the third one does it from purely the financial point of view and, and, and then, of then and the putting diagram. it all together maybe no and, yeah. and trying to put the puzzle pieces together so i think that artificial limitation in mm-hmm. any case helps a lot or you need to do it without budget
0: mm, yeah or okay.
1: well, there's one of the most beautiful tools to maybe get a bit tactical we call it the magic remote mm-hmm First of all, we have people literally physically build a remote out of pipe cleaners and cardboard and what have you, just to activate the other half of their brain, typically with three buttons. And uh, we make one first intense workaround. This is a magic remote. You can actually do anything with those three buttons. You can program them and go, go ahead and program these three buttons to find the solution for the problem we've identified before and where we've brainstormed before what, what solutions could be. So if you had three wishes, what would they be basically? Mm. Uh, the team's come up with fantastic ideas. And then we iterate and we, the batteries die, believe it or not. And these serious supply chain issues out there don't allow us to get new batteries. So let's do the same, but without magic now. And again, we are scoping it small or we are, we are creating that artificial scoping and making it smaller and smaller so that it puts pressure on people who actually come up with a feasible solution at the end. It does it, and again, just only giving them three options, taking away the batteries, are examples of how you create that artificial scopes that, at the end, will be exploded, but that helps energies to emerge.
0: I love the idea with the with the three buttons and the yeah to make it tangible and to make it as soon as you have something, you have a third thing to look at as a team as this little working team, then it makes it also easier to actually be creative on that. And I think the quick iterations also avoid getting married to an idea too early. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Because I think if we have, and it's not to say that there isn't space for long workshops and lots of brainstorming and really deep dive, but I think very often, and also for myself, if i spend considerable an entire day and we came up with this idea i think it's brilliant no matter what mm-hmm. and then if someone uh, puts it in question it's actually there's an emotional cost to it to deviate from this idea and to let Oh it yeah go.
1: oh yeah we try to uh, create lots of moments especially in the beginning of of sessions for people to understand and even feel that mhm that they need to let go of ideas and beloved things where we literally destroy the Lego models that they've been building uh, literally to al- almost tears in their eyes because we destroyed a Lego house. Um, because we somehow emotionally connected them very much with it in the beginning. And, the
0: care effect, right? We fall in love yeah, with what we build ourselves,
1: <laughs> absolutely. And, and learning that to let go basically is important. I do believe, as you were mentioning, length of workshops, I'd rather do one three-day thing than three one-day things um, mm-hmm. because actually the oh, let's call it the fixed cost or the time needed for people to get in the right mental space is pretty high so from mm-hmm. the efficiency point of view uh getting them back in the second and third event to in that mental state but also to understand and remember what did we do two weeks ago or last week uh, is really really hard and just mm-hmm. very inefficient and also less effective because they lost half of the energy somehow on the way. I do think in the way even those long sessions would be built, you need a lot of iteration and you can have that speed anyway. But it's an art of a facilitator, right, to know exactly how much time you need. Yeah. But to have these many iterations and make it feel like time's flying, um, I think that is that is automatically happening. But I'd personally rather spend more time, or well, very frequent time at least, than uh, two than short things.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. What makes a workshop fail?
1: Primarily wrong expectations, and that means if it wasn't prepped well with the people that are what I call the sponsors of the session. Um, so if those expectations aren't right, I mean, I've literally had situations where an hour into the full day session, senior clients sit up and said, "Well, this is not what we wanted." What's going on?
0: <laughs> what went well, wrong?
1: We didn't speak enough to the right people front and not frequently enough on what they need. Right. Mm. And then we prepared for what we think was needed, but that was not what the client really wanted because we spoke to the wrong client and guess what? They don't always talk to each other. <laughs> they also guess and interpret. So no guessing is maybe a very good rule. Uh, validate your assumptions, what you think the client needs and what different people at the client need. Uh, especially if you're convening bigger groups, it's more than one person always. That that is ninety percent of of success or, or or lack of success, right? I I've hardly ever seen a workshop fail technically because the facilitator wasn't good or the crew wasn't good that is supporting the event. Or yes, there's better locations and worse locations, but we can all make as, as experienced facilitators, we can make any workshop work in any setting. We can elevate it to different levels, but a bunch of flip charts in a dark hotel room somehow will, will make it work. Huh? Mm. It will be fun, but or less fun, but it's doable. So it's, it's never these things. Those are just quality differences and impact differences, real failures, these lacking expectations. And then maybe combined with that, not listening, but sticking to your program. If you're realizing it doesn't work, it doesn't always have to be as extreme as the sponsor standing up and say, this is wrong. Let's go. <laughs> By the way, we. Did manage to make a half hour break and just reshuffle it and they stayed right. uh, but it still didn't feel good but daring to let go of your design or at least adjust it not of the objectives necessarily um, mm-hmm. but of how you planned it i think is super important so i've had many sessions where we ideally had a plan b when we realized okay plan a really doesn't work let's do plan b or whether when we realized okay we misjudged time completely so let's give it another two hours, but then let's cut another module and another s- one of the objectives that we had maybe. So being flexible to that design, not to the objective, but to the design is super important, which requires a quite experienced team, of course, right? And yeah. requires yourself as a facilitator and, and session designer as we call it to trust your experience and have the toolkit to spontaneously say, okay, let's do something different now.
0: <laughs> yeah. well, let's
1: make a 50 minute break and redesign quickly.
0: Yeah. And I... Just briefly, so this situation happened to you that the client said, this is not what we want. Mm-hmm. And you were able to, to save the workshop, basically. I think so, yeah. So how did that happen? Because it's also a trust issue and it's an it's a ego issue. What got so, you out of the situation and make it work afterwards? So I think that's a wonderful lesson learned.
1: I think openness. First of all, standing up there as a facilitator and saying to the group, this is obviously not what you wanted, right? We we see it. We feel it. We hear you. We won't be wasting another four hours of your time. But we know we have the right people in the room to do something useful today to actually help you progress with your challenge. So anyway, time for a break. So let's take a half hour break, get a coffee. Maybe I invented a spontaneous homework question and then convene the sponsors. So the top five people that were there that have an interest in the problem itself and make a little session with them iterating that again and saying, well, that was obviously wrong. If we were able to, what would be a good result of the rest of the day for you, right? If we were." And uh, then it's a bit of an art to spontaneously redesign on a flip chart or a whiteboard. Okay, what else could we do? And in that case, we spent 20 minutes understanding what they really wanted and 10 minutes coming up with a better plan to do that because we had all the right experts and all the right facilitation yeah. crew in there. And uh, we're able to do something. And at the end, I even think it probably builds more trust than just plowing through. In, in most cases, it won't be that extreme that the client actually wants to leave, right? Uh, but uh, they would probably just formally or just just not return, right? Um, yeah. Because it wasn't great. So I'd rather dress it head-on as my and, and, and trust yourself that head honesty you will do something good.
0: And I thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. And I love the part where you said, okay, we do have, maybe we addressed the wrong problem and we did the wrong activities, but we trust that we have the right people in the room to help you progress Mm -hmm. on whatever you need to progress. So to have this set and to see that the client trusted your people to have these capabilities. And what it also shows for me is that... Yes, activities are important, but it's not about the activities. The activities, we can come up in 10 minutes with activities to achieve whatever the purpose and expected outcome is. But what is really important, what I'm hearing in your story is, A, to have the awareness and humility as a facilitator to say, okay, let's stop here. This is not working. We get it. And we have the confidence to restructure it. So that's... Humility, confidence, self-awareness, and courage, mm-hmm. to then tell to the client, "Okay, let's sit down and we do that," and then asking the right questions to really understand what their purpose is and what they want to have from the session, mm-hmm. and to get them on board. And I think these are the real facilitation superpowers that very often I ignored. Because everyone focuses on the activities, but yeah, the activities yeah. you shake off your sleep, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for phrasing, framing it like that. It's, uh, couldn't say it better. I think that's really right. And what, yeah. Yeah. Just, I think the one part we didn't go deep in today yet is that that listening and awareness bit, right? I think that is, that is super important because it's easy to have. You can read any facilitation playbook and come. Literally, you can ask ChatGTP to come up with a good agenda. It will work, yeah? but that awareness bit of how the teams and the different parts of the teams, the decision makers as well as the rest of the teams are doing, and whether you're actually progressing towards the right goal is really important. And I actually that's something I cannot. Explain or train. I'm not sure if you've made the same experience, but sometimes literally standing in the middle of a room, five breakouts groups around you, and you can somehow you can feel the energy, right? Yeah. And you can feel which group is buzzing positively and which group is really struggling where you need to go and give them a little nudge in some direction. And uh being that aware is sort of maybe a little bit of the magic of uh what separates different types of facilitators. And I think that that's super, super important. And then you need to have a good toolbox. Uh, your your basic skills, basically, on what what to do next with the result.
0: Yeah. Yes, and I think with the basic tool, even if you only have five tools, you can somehow manage it if you're asking the right yeah.
1: questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: What remains your number one facilitation challenge?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my daily life, the big, biggest challenge in my work is actually convincing leaders. To dare to take the different approach, so that mm. is my biggest just real facilitation challenge that I'm struggling with every day in my role. Mm, when we think about an actual event situation as a facilitator, mm, to think for that for a few seconds, staying fresh. Maybe the more often you do that, the more often you repeat a module that you that you love. Yeah. Um, the higher the risk at your own energy that you're transferring to the group is, is lower than when you did it the first time. Mm. For example, we had a rule in my team or still have that with every new design that we do for an event, we need to have at least one bold new module in there yes. that we've never done mm-hmm. before. We might need to invent it because it doesn't exist yet, but we at least need to have that one moment in the day where we are on, on our toes and are really curious whether this will work. Yeah, That was a good rule. Or sometimes it's partially fun, but actually there's the same series reason behind that, uh, we get facilitator challenges. So mm. throughout the day, you need to say, the pink elephant is swimming in a bathtub. <laughs> Publicly. Do something with it, right? And it's it sounds like for fun, and the crew is typically very much, uh, it's a lot of fun with these challenges, but it makes you be more active as a facilitator. So I think the more you facilitate staying fresh is probably... main challenge
0: i love that and yes about the new activities especially if you've never done them before Mm -hmm. because i think if you're excited about an activity the group will sense it yeah and there is a different flow than to it yeah yeah doing the same thing over and over again
1: yeah and it, it's actually, okay. it's also okay to fail in those. I remember one session that was early COVID times, one of the first online sessions we did, and we transferred an offline module of a big complex game with multiple groups that would last more than two hours and a big complex scoring system, but very elaborate. We transferred that into the online world to a group with a hundred online participants. And uh, we made a whole bus out of it, right? we, we, talked about it that that would be super exciting the most exciting part of the day and we introduced it with lots of sounds and gimmicks etc and then when we asked people to enter their scores in the complex google sheet scoring model we realized we have 110 participants and google breaks down after 100 Oops. and so the whole thing didn't fail it would have been a half hour fix to set up the sheets differently if we had tested exactly that up front but we we hadn't in early covid days and um Completely failed. Had to scratch the module. Fast forward to the next one, but at the end it didn't matter. Right? It took us took ten or fifteen minutes of that the decline time was wasted. Yeah. But it then tell spin the story in a way that hey, we wanted to demonstrate how failure is important and uh, <laughs> innovating, and uh, depending on the topic, you tell a nice story around it. It actually makes sense. Yeah. And uh, it was okay, right? Nobody said, well, unprofessional." Um, so. Can only encourage people to, to dare to be bold and try things that one out of ten might actually fail like that. But so what?
0: Yeah, and there's always a learning moment. Yeah. Around failing mindset, fail forward, experiment. Yeah. And discussing how the organization actually reacts to that. And even if it's just how team members react to that, because some are more open. To this failure and approach it with a curious mindset, others get totally disturbed. Yeah. And I think even for a team workshop or strategy leadership, how did we just experience it differently and deal with it is a great learning moment.
1: Mm. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Came a long way.
1: Didn't we? Yeah.
0: Is there anything that you wished you had shared, but we haven't touched upon yet?
1: I think we made a very wide round. So, mm. I think we covered it. And I hope uh, some people are inspired to create even better environments for their teams.
0: Yes. And their children.
1: Whatever the teams are, whatever age
0: they (laughs) (laughs) are. Okay, I like that. Yes. Thank you, Benedict.
1: Miriam, thank you too. Has been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for staying tuned and for listening until the very end. I hope that you found the inspiration and the wisdom that you are looking for. And I hope that you will subscribe to the show so that you never miss any of the interviews with another inspiring facilitator from across the world. I'm devoted to continue this podcast and to deliver weekly an episode that maintains the quality that you expect and you deserve. And if you would like to help me to maintain this quality and to keep the podcast free, please help us. Visit workshops.org slash support to make a small donation to keep the podcast free. Thank you so much. I hope to be in your ears next week.